Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, cardio nerds. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country as part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report series produced in collaboration with the ACC Fellow in Training section. Each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from the program present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from the program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you are about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardi Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced, while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com slash cardionerds. Every little bit goes a long way. We're also so excited to be growing the platform by mentoring the next generation of cardionerds. We are establishing the Cardionerds Academy and are looking for residents and fellows to join as Cardionerds fellows. Please see the link in the episode description to submit an application. Without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardionerds colleagues. We are absolutely thrilled to be joined by colleagues and all-stars from the Duke Cardiology Fellowship Program. Guys, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves? Yeah. My name is Navid Nafisi. I'm a third-year cardiology fellow at Duke Hospital, interested in electrophysiology. Right now, I'm on a T32 science grant uh, through the NIH. I love Duke and all the fellows that I've gotten to work with and faculty. I love being in Durham, and if I had to pick a favorite place, there's probably two places that I would choose. One is the Duke Gardens, which are like 50 acres of just beautiful manicured gardens on Duke's campus. And it's where I proposed to my fiance, so it holds a special place in my heart. It's just gorgeous there. And then the other would be Cameron Indoor Stadium, where the Duke Blue Devils play basketball. And I've been fortunate enough to get tickets to several games through attendings that will just offer the fellows, anyone interested, a chance to go. And it's a place that I went to many times as an undergrad at Duke and have great fond memories of uh, going to the basketball game there. Well, thanks, Navid. And congratulations for your engagement. That's pretty awesome. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Hey guys, I'm Simple Yankee. I'm a third year fellow at Duke. I've got aspirations to, to do structural and interventional cardiology. So I'm currently an advanced imaging fellow here at Duke. And I think like Navid, I have great love for Duke and the Durham area. I was actually here as a resident. And so I'd say probably one of the things that I really enjoy is the food scene. And I think every place, everyone says that, but particularly the food truck scene. Durham has, and really the Triangle, has some amazing food truck scenery. I actually have a really good friend of mine who I've known for the last couple of years who actually just opened up his own food truck. So I've been eating a lot of food truck food. Yeah, I really, really enjoy my training at Duke as well and um, look forward to sharing some of those thoughts with you guys. And my name is Marat Fudim. I am a former cardiology fellow. Just a month ago, I completed my five-year training at Duke as an advanced heart failure and joined the faculty as a cardiology attending, but also doing advanced heart failure, spending time in the cath lab, rounding clinic time, but also having a good amount of protected research time. Training at Duke is unique because it has a very good mix of clinical and research training. Most of us end up doing two clinical years, two research years. And I know there will be a little bit more background on that from Dr. Crowley, our program director, and Dr. Argawal, our heart failure director. And what I love about Durham, I'm originally from Germany. I did my medical school there. And once I was finished, I came over to the United States. Durham is probably the smallest city I've ever lived in, yet it has a lot to offer and is very family-friendly. I have two little kids, so it's affordable. It has all the beautiful things that Navid described that one can do with or without kids. And you're always close to Duke, which is very nice, and everything's very green. Wow, that's terrific. You guys have really painted an amazing picture of Duke. And I have to say, I was recently, a couple months ago, I was on the COVID ICU unit with a Palm Fellow. We were working side by side and she was from Duke from residency. And we use Google Maps to kind of like 
explore Durham because I had, I've never been there and it was really beautiful. And Google Maps chose a beautiful sunny day to drive around. So it was kind of nice to travel. She was definitely into showing me the garden. So we checked out the garden. So it's, it's obvious we're going to have to go discuss this case in the Duke Gardens, but which food truck should we pick? You just mentioned a bunch. So any particular food truck that we should pick up our food before we start? I would have to endorse the Latin effect. It's a really, really Ooh. good Honduran inspired food truck. So lots of options for everyone, vegetarian included, super tasty food. You've got by it spicy. <laughs> Is it going to be too know, spicy? It, 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 it's not that spicy, but you can. They've got extra sauces that you can make it spicy. I guess depending on how the case goes, I'll spice titrate accordingly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, you want to get us started? So yeah, I've got a case here. So it's a 69-year-old gentleman who is coming in with progressive heart failure symptoms. Specifically, he's had five months of progressive dyspnea on exertion. During that time, several hospitalizations for volume overload where he's required IV diuresis and is ultimately transferred to our hospital from an outside hospital for medically refractory heart failure. Going through his past medical history, he carries a diagnosis of long-standing persistent AFib and prior echoes have shown um, that he has moderate MR, moderate to severe TR, but normal ventricular function. No surgical history. As far as medications, he's on metoprolol tartrate, 25 milligrams twice a day, alacinopril, 5 milligrams daily, A6, 40 milligrams daily, and a fixed 5 milligrams twice a day for thromboembolic prophylaxis. As far as family history, he does have a father who had AFib and heart failure who lived to his 80s. His mother also carried a diagnosis of AFib and her brother has AFib as well, so quite a bit of AFib in the family. And then as far as his social history, he is a remote smoker, quit many years ago, but has about a 10-pack year history. And he's retired from working in historical restorations, but before that, worked for the U.S. Coast Guard as a rescue diver. Your social history really gives some depth to the patient. It's something that stood out to me because his wife would talk about how functional he was. He was, he was a rescue diver, and he was doing restorations and all his life has been very active and now this has happened so it really stood out and so when he transferred over as far as his physical exam and vitals he's afebrile heart rate was in the hundreds blood pressure was normotensive one teens over 70s respiratory rate was normal he was a bit hypoxemic 91 percent on three liters nasal cannula as far as his exam he did have elevated jugular venous pressure that did not vary with inspiration Cardiac exam, he was tachycardic, irregularly irregular, holosystolic murmurs at the apex and the left lower sternal border. Pulmonary exam was notable for bivasal or crackles. His abdomen was distended, tense, and his extremities, while warm, did have two-plus pitting edema to the mid-thighs. As far as his labs, his basic metabolic panel was only notable for an elevated creatinine of 1.4, previously had a normal renal function. As far as his LFTs, Essentially normal, aside from his T-billy, which was a bit elevated at 1.8. His albumin was a touch low at 3.3. And then with regard to his CBC, he was anemic with a hemoglobin of 7.8. Platelets were low at 101. White count was normal. As far as his coax, his INR is 1.8. And his NT-proBNP was elevated at 2200. His lactate was normal. And I'll add that just thinking about the labs, we all think about acute renovascular congestion and acute hepatic congestion. But his AST and ALT are normal, but the T-billy is elevated. The albumin is slightly low. The platelets are low, which could be from a number of causes, obviously, but in thinking about hypersplenism. And the INR is elevated, even though this patient is on a NOAC and not warfarin. And so immediately you're thinking, is this sort of a acute hepatic congestion with liver injury? But there's an undertone of some chronicity to a possibly hepatic type of picture. But it's really fascinating so far. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a really great report on this gentleman. So let me make sure that we're all understanding each other here. So we've got a 69-year-old gentleman coming in with worsening dyspnea on exertion over the last five months with repeat heart failure admissions at outside hospitals. He's got a notable history here of persistent AFib with moderate MR and moderate to severe TR. Doesn't seem like he's maximally optimized on guideline-directed medical therapy. But his exam, when you see him, is consistent with heart failure. It sounds like he's got an elevated JVD, bilateral pitting edema, and bi-basal crackles, along with holosystolic murmurs in the apex and in the left lateral sternal border. His labs are pretty notable for a AKI. The creatinine I saw was 1.4. He's got an elevated pro-BMP, anemia, thrombocytopenia, low albumin, elevated T-billy, and an elevated INR. So we can move on to some of his uh, other data. 
starting with his chest X-ray, which was quite striking, I'll say. And what's striking about it is that his heart takes up the majority of his chest. And I think the technical term would be cardiomegaly. And the classic teaching is if the heart takes up more than half of the diameter of the chest, then that would be consistent with cardiomegaly. In his case, his heart probably takes up close to 90% of the chest diameter. I think the term for this is cardiomegaly fulminant. I mean, I, this is yeah. like, holy cow, this is incredible. This is crazy. Yeah. Folks, if you're listening, you have to see this x-ray. You must go to the show notes, click on the link, get on this blog page. You have to see this picture here. I've never seen something like it. And actually, you can see his lungs look like they're compressed and there's atelectasis there and pulmonary edema as well. And then going to his EKG, when this was captured, his heart rate had come down. So he's in rate-controlled AFib on this 12-lead EKG. He does have frequent PVCs. He has a left posterior fascicular block, and he has some nonspecific ST changes. And that brings us to kind of a pause point again. And, and I was uh, wondering, Murad, if you don't mind, maybe talking us through what the differential diagnosis might be for this gentleman. Right. Thank you. This was about the time where I interjected in his care and became acquainted with his trajectory. He has been hospitalized many times. We knew historically that he had a preserved ejection fraction. He's a veteran. So he came to our institution for the first time. We didn't have much data on him. But when you look at that large chest x-ray, initially you would want to think there's no way a heart can be that big. Maybe there's something extra cardiac of a mass, but they would have picked up on it earlier. So that's something we looked in initially. But if you look at the heart itself, the differential we had was, is this tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy from rate uncontrolled AFib? Does he have lung disease or pulmonary disease that led to a long-standing severe pulmonary hypertension? Primarily, this could represent right ventricular dilation. Could this be valvular disease that was undertreated, undiagnosed? And then you think of your typical diagnosis like ischemic cardiomyopathy. This could be dilated cardiomyopathy now. Maybe the rejection fraction is not reduced. You can think of infiltrative cardiomyopathies like amyloids. When you get at this crossroads, you need a little bit more data. So in, in his case, we thought of obtaining an echo, right catheterization, and we're considering an MR as well. Yeah, and I'm certainly really excited to see the imaging here because for the audience, if you take a look at the EKG and the chest X-ray, the chest X-ray shows massive cardiomegaly, and I'm assuming it's a heart and not like a big thiomoma or something. But correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a disconnect between at least what we are perceiving as cardiomegaly and the voltages on the EKG. And the EKG volts don't meet criteria for high voltage, but there's certainly a disconnect. And it'll be interesting to see what the echo shows. Yeah, I agree. If you would suspect a massively enlarged heart due to LV and RV mass, you would have expected higher voltages, like right? Hocum or HCM in general. But that we didn't see. The heart also, when it's so enlarged, is of course also much closer to the chest throughout. So you would get actually pretty good tall R waves, even though the ventricle might be actually dilated and thinned out. So you can go both ways. But again, the EKG did not provide us much information besides the fact that the patient was an AFib and had PVCs, which suggests that there's clearly something wrong with the heart, irrespective of the large size. Yeah, totally. That's great. So Marat, I want to pick your brain up. I know we talked about an echo. What other testing do you think we should get next? Well, I think start from the easiest echo and MRI. Right at cath was also considered. You always want to look at the coronaries as well. And that is, of course, something you can do on top of the right at cath once you're there, if that wasn't done recently. But this man has been hospitalized many times and actually had a catheterization done earlier, from what I remember. Yeah, that's great. So let's start with the echo images. And Sipa is our imaging expert. Maybe you could walk us through these images. Well, thanks, Ali. I think that's a little kind. <laughs> but yeah, I'd love to walk us through these images. So the first image shows us an apical four chamber. I think the biggest thing that jumps out to you first is he's got severe biatrial enlargement, with LA certainly being large, but RA being even larger. You do have preserved LV systolic function. You can actually see pretty good squeeze in that view. And trust me when I say there was grade three diastolic dysfunction. I think we need to talk about diastolic dysfunction a little bit more later. But based off some of the things we looked offline, he's got some significant diastolic dysfunction, as you might expect, as well as some mild RV dysfunction. So I think we have to appreciate what diastolic dysfunction really entails. And it really is an abnormality of LV diastolic distensibility, filling, or relaxation. So one of more of these abnormalities prevents the LV from filling on adequate end diastolic volume at normal pressures. So basically, if you look at this a different way, 
in order for the ventricle with diastolic dysfunction to fill at a normal pressure, the end diastolic volume must be much lower than optimal. So you can imagine how problematic this can be for optimal LV filling. You do have to take into account there are certain conditions where diastolic dysfunction is difficult to assess. So mitral anandinal calcification, AFib, which did occur in this gentleman, but certain different criteria can be used and coexisting MR. I think for the purposes of this talk, we'll kind of focus on the classic diastolic dysfunction measurements. So just to elaborate a little bit more on that, things you're looking for to determine if diastolic dysfunction exists, you're looking at the average E to E prime ratio being greater than 14. You're looking at a TR velocity greater than 2.8 meters per second. You're looking at a left atrial volume index of greater than 34 mils per meter squared. And then you're going to look at that E prime velocity. So on the lateral wall, less than 10. On the septal wall, less than 7. So if you have all these things coexisting, you're certainly going to have diastolic dysfunction. So greater than 50% is what's needed. If you've got 50% of this, it's indeterminate. And less than 50%, you've got normal diastolic function. The grading for diastolic dysfunction, I think the simplest way to think about it, if you've got an E to A ratio that's greater than 2, you've pretty much got grade 3, as long as there's an increased left atrial pressure. If you've got an E to A less than 0.8 and maybe an E velocity less than 50, your likelihood is going to be grade one. And if you're somewhere in the middle, it could be grade one, could be grade two, or might be indeterminate. Sipa, that was an amazing walkthrough for diastolic dysfunction. And I just want to, again, just really reflect on what we're looking at here. We have this patient coming in with a, a chronic heart failure situation that may have had an acute exacerbation, very consistent with the labs. We have this chest x-ray showing just a ginormous cardiac silhouette. And now we're seeing on the echo just these ginormous, ginormous atria and relatively smaller ventricles, which, again, I want to tease out why you went straight to diastolic dysfunction. Because this is screaming diastolic dysfunction. You're just looking at a ventricle that you may have thought by the history was going to have a reduced ejection fraction and clear systolic dysfunction. But what, what we're actually being presented is, okay, ventricle, I'm not exactly sure how, based on the images that I'm seeing, what the actual systolic function is from an ejection fraction perspective. But we are looking at an echo that screams high filling pressures. High, high, high filling pressures. And again, we'll show the audience these just to get an idea. And this is probably going to be an essential component to the case. There's something that's going on here that's causing this particular picture. And it's obviously at the root of the patient's symptomatology of that congestion. It's really screaming congestion, congestion, congestion. Yeah, and I'll add on to that. The audience just has to pull up the images and take a look at this. Because if I were to express my thoughts on these atria in emoji form, it would be no less than 10 mind-blown emojis. <laughs> uh, it's got to be the biggest atria I've ever seen. And just to think about big atria, I think of atria as sort of a dipstick for chronic filling pressures, right? And so it's really hard to have significant diastolic dysfunction, significant aortic stenosis, significant mitral regurgitation in a chronic scale without having dilated left atrium for the left side and uh, similar situations for the right side. But the other situations that I think we also have to consider are abnormalities of the atria that are separated from the ventricles, right? And so there are situations where a patient may just have chronic atrial fibrillation. Now, atrial fibrillation can be secondary to the ventricular problem and atrial dilation, but primary atrial fibrillation in and of itself can cause atrial dilation. And there's also a concept of atrial myopathies, which can be isolated atrial myopathy separate from the ventricular dysfunction itself. And so in this situation, going the extra mile and getting tissue characterization from the CMR, as well as a right heart cath will be really helpful because at this point I'm thinking, okay, is this AFib-related atrial dilation? Is it atrial myopathy or truly is there something wrong with the ventricles or valves that we haven't seen yet? That's great. Yeah, they're all great points. I'll just add Jacob Schroeder, one of our transplant surgeons, when he saw this echo, uh, first thing that came out of his mouth was, uh, his heart's upside down, I think. You know, cause, uh, <laughs> 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 this is the reverse apical fort chamber? Yeah. <laughs> yeah is this a pizza echo? I'm not sure. So anyway. This next image is our apical food chamber. You can see a good amount of MR, so probably moderate MR. But I think more interestingly, you can actually kind of see what looks to me to be the coronary sinus. So if you look towards the left side of the screen, you can kind of see the circular shape 
um, that's right at the level of the annulus. And, you know, it makes sense with the story that you're selling us of significant volume overload. Uh -huh. And probably this has been going on for a good amount of time. To the right of the screen, I can't help but think that that's actually the left atrial appendage. Yeah. In theory, you could see those two structures in a two chamber and someone who's had significant volume overload of the atria. But generally speaking, you don't classically see that in the two chamber. So this is an amazing finding for this patient. Oh, what a great pearl. I love that. Last but not least, we do have an RV-focused image. So you see that the echo is really focusing on the right ventricle and the right atrium. As you can see on the color Doppler on the right side, this patient has torrential TR. If you actually look on the 2D image, the leaflets are not even coacting. They're not coming together. And so it explains why there's basically wide open TR and even more so why that right atrium is so much bigger than the left. So an MRI, which obviously I think Murad had alluded to us getting, they say that the echo never lies unless there's an MRI. But the MRI here <laughs> we, is we actually had a We had a recent episode where they referred to the MRI as the, what was it, the tube of truth or something? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> tube of truth. The tube of truth, um, and then they were like, well, now, next we're going to take the patient to the table of truth, which is a cat. So I think uh, oh, that awesome. works here too. <laughs> yeah, no, we've, we've got a lot of great MRI readers at Duke, and they really, really love to get MRI images to follow up to confirm that <laughs> maybe ambiguous or not. So in this clip, I think you pretty much get some confirmation of the echo findings. We've got re-demonstration of severe biatrial enlargement. The LA measured about eight centimeters across, so pretty large. And the RA visually is about twice the size of the LA. Don't have any evidence of delayed enhancement, as you might expect for, say, MI or scar or an infiltrative disease. And just to come back to that point, what exactly do we mean by delayed enhancement? I think certainly for folks who maybe haven't done their imaging yet or maybe some of our earlier trainees, there's a different pattern of contrast accumulation in normal and injured myocardial tissue. And so we can exploit this for perfusion imaging and delayed imaging and help pinpoint diagnoses where there's scar present or ischemia. So ischemic myocardium typically has a delayed time to peak for enhancement and a lower peak enhancement compared to normal myocardium. Whereas scar will actually demonstrate an increased accumulation of contrast agent in combination with a delayed washout time. So hence the term delayed enhancement imaging. This definitely um, kind of helps to add value to your MRI imaging. Yeah, that was great, Sipa. Thank you for going through that. I was hoping you could go through his right heart cath data for us. I believe you were in on his case. Yeah, that was probably one of the longest right heart caths that I've ever done. As you can imagine, his anatomy was so distorted that the case took a little bit longer because we had a hard time getting into the RV and then progressed to the PA and further on. What we found is maybe to no surprise, we found that the intracardiac filling pressure, such as the RA, was elevated, was 23. The PA mean was 33. And the wedge pressure was 27. I mean, those are elevated numbers. They were not outrageously high. This was few days into the hospitalization, probably two or three days only. And then the cardiac index was 3.3 at that time point. So preserved ejection fraction and elevated filling pressures at this time point, probably all consistent with what appears to be a restrictive cardiomyopathy. At this time point, we did want to obtain a tissue biopsy, yet because it was so long into the case and we had such a difficulty just to do the SWAN measurement that we actually aborted doing the biopsy. You can imagine under x-ray or flora guidance, it's an x-ray guided biopsy. So you have to rely on anatomical landmarks, but this is nothing like a standard heart. So relying on anatomical landmarks would have been potentially dangerous. Even echo guided, this was not an easy imaging study. So we felt like let's abort tissue biopsy. You know, that's a really good point, actually. I hadn't thought about that. And I'd like to actually just take a moment to plug cardiology in general. One of the things I love about cardiology is all of the multi-modality diagnostic evaluations that goes into figuring out what's going on. And in this case, restricted cardiomyopathy is no different. Going along what Seba was talking about earlier with diastolic dysfunction, these patients tend to have uh, preserved systolic function. So by the time you have beginning of diastole, the LV is ready and primed to accept fluid, right? And on the back end with the atria, the filling pressures are so incredibly high that there's a big driving pressure for that early diastolic filling. 
in this situation, you have a really fast, rapid, early mitral inflow. That's the velocity of the mitral inflow E-wave. At the same time, because the ventricular function is restrictive, even a small amount of fluid volume going in will increase the pressure. So there'll be an abrupt stop to that diastolic early filling. The physical exam correlate of that is the S3 gallop, right? Fluid gushes in and then it sort of stops. And these patients typically also have a loud S4, but in this case, the patient had AFib. But the echo parameter equivalent for that is the fast E-wave. And the right heart cath parameter for that is the square root sign that we'll see, right? That acutely decreased diastolic pressure in the LV with a rapid rise and then plateau in early diastole. I was wondering maybe if you guys saw that and this goes right along with your description of diastolic dysfunction that we'll see in restrictive heart disease. Yeah, I think he did have square root sign on his right heart cath tracings. Was there ever a question to do a simultaneous right and left heart cath, especially since you had talked about coronary artery disease as something on the differential? The left heart cath, I believe he had at an outside hospital at some point along the way, which came back negative. And with his MRI not showing any evidence of scar or infarct, there wasn't compelling reason to do it. The MRI provides some evidence on constriction restriction as well. There was no evidence of constriction based on the MRI images. When we go into the right at cath, we didn't plan on doing a left and we saw an equalization of pressures on right and left side based on the wedge pressure, which was very similar to the RA pressure to the PA diastolic pressure. So we had a very good idea that this all would fit restrictive cardiomyopathy. So we did not intend in this anatomically challenging case to do any additional invasive testing that could have complicated. I mean, I'm serious. We were one half hours in that case. We had to hop the PA catheter because we just lost so much of it in the RA. Yeah, absolutely. And actually just from my own understanding, I thought that diastolic equalization in the chambers was more indicative of a constrictive pericarditis. Am I thinking about that wrong? You can have it in both. I see. Okay. So that was not a differentiating point. Yeah, in order to fill such a large heart, you need to pre-expand it with a lot of volume. So you have high volumes throughout the system and it's a biventricular disease. So you have high filling pressure on both sides as a baseline. Gotcha. Okay, so just gonna go through some additional workup that we did briefly. Um, we did get pulmonary function testing, just given a smoking history, we did find that he had a mixed obstructive and restrictive defect. We, we attributed the obstructive defect to smoking and the restrictive defect we thought likely was related to compression of the lungs from its cardiomegaly fulminans. We did get a PYP scan, which didn't show any evidence of hemolytosis. Checked a ferritin and transferrin set, which did not support a diagnosis of hemochromatosis. And then additional workup included an acylcarnitine profile and class amino acids, looking for evidence of inherited disorders of metabolism which were not present. Next, I wanted to talk about his blood volume analysis. And actually, Murat, I was hoping that you could walk us through this as well. And maybe I can ask at this point, I usually don't frequently check for a blood volume analysis. What does it add at this point? Because it's not on my list of things to do. So this is great for me to see. So it was actually coincidentally that this patient was enrolled in one of my research studies where we tried to study congestion parameters and understanding volume was one of our goals. And so a blood volume analysis FDA approved for many years, for many decades, and it is a radio dilution technique. So you inject a small volume of radio labeled albumin and you let it dilute. So a known amount of radio labeled albumin is injected into an unknown space or volume. And as you draw samples over the subsequent half an hour, you understand through the dilution of the radioactivity, how much volume we injected that tracer into. So you can deduce from that what the blood volume is. And then not only the blood volume, but you actually can analyze both subfractions. So the red blood cell volume and the plasma volume. And differentiating those two components actually can become very helpful in certain cases. And he actually was a case where it was very interesting. As you remember, in his labs, his initial hemoglobin was below eight. And the, the results are presented as a deviation from ideal. So given his weight, height, gender, uh, you can measure how much is his current plasma volume and red blood cell volume deviate from his ideal. And what we found is that he had an extreme excess of total blood volume. He had a plus 137% of total blood volume. So his volume pool, intravascular, it's a purely intravascular measure, not extravascular. The intravascular volume was massively expanded to 137%. And then this was primarily driven by plasma volume. 
as opposed to the red blood cell volume because the red blood cell volume was expanded by 35%, but disproportionate compared to the plasma volume, which was expanded by 207%. So a tripling of the total blood volume to what one would have expected for a man of his size. This is interesting because if you would get this man to a normal plasma volume, he would actually have a high hemoglobin. His hemoglobin would not be seven or eight. It would actually be 14, 15. He's actually having too many red blood cells in an attempt probably to compensate for this massive volume expansion. So this is a prime example of hemodilution. So he's diluting his red blood cells with a plasma volume, which makes him appear to be red blood cell deficient, but he's actually not. And another corroborating piece of evidence that he has this massive plasma volume expansion is that he also had a massive expansion of his vascular pool. And he has a huge heart, so he can dump probably an extra liter into his chest easy that he already there needed more plasma volume just doing that. But if you actually looked at this IBC, which I performed myself, it was seven and a half centimeters. His IVC was seven and a half centimeters. So his entire central wow. vasculature was massively expanded from chronic decade long, high filling pressures, high TR. And this is partially explained by this results of the blood volume analysis. Wow, this is actually a fascinating discussion. I've taken care of a lot of patients with restrictive cardiomyopathies and their cardiac index could still be pretty low. But I noted that for this particular patient, the cardiac index was 3.3 liters per minute per meter squared. So it's really not that low at all. And I wonder if all of this development of blood volume is really a part of the pathophys and that's a really a big aspect of the congestion. Because again, if we are measuring the intravascular volume in the venous system and we're already seeing an incredibly engorged venous system, we could also probably extrapolate that there's a lot of extra volume because of the hydrostatic pressures and forces that are basically at play. And again, why we have the congestive hepatopathy and all the things that we're seeing on the labs and exam. But I wonder if at this point in time, since this patient is not completely decompensated from a poor perfusion state, this is all compensatory and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe the plasma volume is much easier for the body to create than to do so with hemoglobin. He may be have an iron deficiency or some other rate limiting factor to produce the right amount of hemoglobin, but blood volume he's able to readily do. Maybe that's why he's able to continue to perfuse with this particular cardiac index. I don't know. What do you think? No, absolutely. I mean, this will divulge into a scientific direction, but it's sort of hard to define what is euvolemia. We can argue that having blood volume, plasma and red blood cell volume, like in a heart failure patient that is similar to a control patient is euvolemia, but well, that makes sense. But what if somebody has long-standing chronic heart failure where, like you said, there might be a compensatory phase where having an elevated blood volume is actually not that detrimental, but rather intended to prop up those large veins, prop up the very dilated ventricle that maybe has now adjusted on the stalling curve a little bit further to the right and requires maybe a little bit more predilation to be more functional, particularly in this patient. I mean, everything about this patient is unusual, but you can imagine if you were to remove two, three liters of plasma from this man, which seems to be excessive per this one test, you would actually probably harm that man acutely because he cannot tolerate to have his atria collapse all of a sudden. I think it's compensatory, but he was clinically decompensated. So we knew that this man probably had too much on board, no matter his anatomy. But we also intended never to massively diurese him, given that he actually had a preserved cardiac index and some of that might be truly compensatory. So Marat, let's go back to the bedside. This test, I'm not used to thinking of in terms of my routine management of cardiomyopathy. Is this something that you do on a routine basis? If so, what are the indications for this? Is this more of a research protocol at this point? And what does it add to our clinical management in this specific scenario? Just to take it back to the patient on the bedside. Great questions. So this is a clinically available tool that has been run thousands of times across the country. The indication for uh, radio-labeled albumin to be used to determine blood volume is actually broad. This is just a volume determination. So primarily in the past, it has been used in a critical care setting where it has been prospectively validated to improve outcomes. You can imagine if it helps the 
ICU doctor determine whether you're dry, uvolemic, or wet. It helps you a little bit in the management. Then in the syncope space, it has been used quite a bit. That's where Mayo Clinic and Cleveland Clinic have been using that in the past a lot. I've seen it used for the evaluation of syncope here. Right. For a heart failure space, that's the question you probably had primarily in mind. In a heart failure space, it has been used many thousand times across the country, and my research is into that direction. There has been some retrospective studies that associated knowledge gained by blood volume analysis with better outcomes. There was a Jack HF paper from a couple of years ago. Strohbeck was the first author. But prospective studies to show whether blood volume analysis guided heart failure is associated with better outcomes is to be determined. As a matter of fact, that's the study I'm doing right now. That's where all of this comes in. And this data was unblinded, thus we sort of share it here. I always tell my trainees, co-fellows, pressures do not equal volume. You can have normal pressures, high volume, and vice versa. And we often think of congestion, the term congestion, as a surrogate of high pressures and equal it very simply to volume. But it's very hard to measure volume. When we look at the neck veins, this is not necessarily a representation of volume overload. It is an indication of pressure overload, yes, but not necessarily volume overload because you actually can be, quote-unquote, uvolemic, have a normal plasma volume and red blood cell volume, but have high filling pressures, which is the Lynn-Stevenson dry and cold. So this is where the test could fit in very nicely to determine those cases where clinically you don't feel that you understand the patient. The other patients where I love to use this test is patients with a high BMI. And a physical exam is very hard in those patients. Catheterization sometimes, you're afraid of the risk associated with the catheterization. So doing this test in that setting sometimes results to be very beneficial. Mara, thanks for going over that. That's super interesting. And just to bring it back to the patient, Sipa, at this point, we've got fascinating presentation, really incredible images with a chest X-ray, echo, CMR. We've got hemodynamic assessments, blood volume assessments. How are we putting this patient together in terms of what the etiology is of his heart failure? So just to review, we've got an older gentleman with worsening dysion exertion, pretty much consistent with worsening heart failure. We've got an echo that shows severe biatrial enlargement marked diastolic dysfunction with preserved LV systolic function, moderate MR, severe TR, all consistent with what looks like a restrictive cardiomyopathy. We've got a cath that's showing elevated intracardiac pressures that would go along with that. However, we did see that normal cardiac index. But as we talked about extensively, this perhaps is a dilution anemia that we saw as we covered the blood volume analysis. When you start to think about what's going on, the things that come to mind for me certainly would be other restrictive causes such as amyloidosis or sarcoidosis. Certainly with that biatrial enlargement, you definitely got to think about amyloid. But you would have seen some evidence of that on the delayed enhancement images on the MRI. Like you mentioned before, Navi, hemochromatosis, we looked for that in the labs and didn't find any suggestion of that. And then with some of the Thor's diseases, so glycogen Thor's disease, Fabre's, we didn't see any evidence of that either. The thoughts about carfinoid or even a chemo-induced or radiation-induced cardiomyopathy, he's had no history to really suggest that. So then you have to think about an idiopathic or inherited restricted cardiomyopathy. Yeah, that's great. So we actually did do genetic testing for this gentleman, and he was found to have pathogenic missense mutation in the gene MYBPC3, which encodes the sarcomeric protein myosin binding protein C. So that's a great thought. That's exactly right. Restrictive cardiomyopathy and an otherwise negative evaluation for etiology, it's very reasonable to start to consider familial causes and genetic causes, and that's exactly what we did. What do you think we should do next? This is a pretty complicated case, and it makes you really try and dive deep, but I think you have to step back and think about it simply. So diastolic dysfunction is definitely one of the biggest things that's leading to its symptoms and certainly is a big part of restrictive cardiomyopathy. So I think we definitely have to optimize the volume status. I think initially some aggressive diuresis is warranted, but I think as Marad alluded to earlier, there's a balance. So as you do still need some elevated pressures to have adequate filling as the heart has gotten used to that. So we would diurese, but diurese judiciously. The other thing is he does have that arrhythmia, AFib is probably not helping his heart failure. And I think finding ways to control or at least manage the AFib 
His LV functions systolically is preserved. So one has to wonder, would inotropes help? But with that RV dysfunction we've mentioned, inotrope use might be helpful to get continued forward flow. But I would maybe think about that a little bit deeper. This man has reached probably end-stage heart failure. So you have to start thinking about advanced therapy. So your mechanical support devices or even transplantation, but he's a little bit on the older side. Yeah, that's exactly right, Sipa. And we did aggressively diurese him with an IV Lasix strip and we gave him doses of metolin. He did require low-dose inotropic support with dopamine and butamine for worsening right heart failure and cardiorenal syndrome. We did try to treat his AFib with amiodarone, which resulted in some modest rate control, but he remained in AFib. Despite these efforts, as you alluded to, he had ongoing heart failure symptoms, hypoxemia, and given the lack of mechanical support options and restrictive cardiomyopathy, we ultimately listed him for heart transplantation, and he did undergo a successful heart transplant, had an uncomplicated post-transplant course, his oxygen requirement resolved shortly after his transplantation, and his AKI resolved prior to discharge. Pathologic analysis of his explanted heart showed biventricular hypertrophy, which you might imagine he had an LV posterior wall thickness of 1.4 centimeters and a septal wall thickness of 1.5 centimeters, and an RV wall thickness of 0.7 centimeters. And on histology, he had evidence of myocyte hypertrophy and mild focal myocyte disarray, which are findings that you would expect to see in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but can also be seen in hereditary restrictive cardiomyopathy. That's incredible. Before I found out what the histology was, all I'm thinking is this picture of this echo really reminds me very much of many patients that I've taken care of with burnt out hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which we did a really nice series discussing the different stages of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. You end up with this restrictive pattern and ejection fraction may not even be the problem. In that series, discussed kind of what you're alluding to, how supporting the LV with different modalities, whether it's mechanical circulatory support or inotropic agents may actually be deleterious because the LV doesn't need that support. It needs more of an unload. Just phenomenal, phenomenal to see this overlap within the genetic world of genetic cardiomyopathies and to see that there's some tissue characteristics that are similar across the two disease entities. And the management is very similar as well. A lot of these burnt out hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patients, you're really damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Or darn, we're a PG show. Can we say that? If you do. Uh, I don't think we can say it on Apple Podcast, Dan. Yeah. Darned if you do. Uh, explicit and if explicit you do. content. <laughs> yeah, I'll be uh, <laughs> Yeah, darned if you do and darned if you don't. Getting rid of too much volume, as Marat talked about when we were discussing that, the blood volume analysis, if you diurese too aggressively, you can really cause a problem. Like those ventricles require that filling. So just absolutely fascinating. And your management was obviously very impressive. And the analysis that got him through to the transplant was just incredibly helpful, I'm sure, to this patient. And a couple of bits that I learned along the way that are relevant for this patient is his primary symptoms was dyspnea on exertion. And People with restrictive cardiomyopathy, in particular, tolerate exertion very poorly. That's one of the earliest signs because you can imagine exercise physiology, you have decreased SVR, increased cardiac output, and that excess volume is exactly what these ventricles don't tolerate well. And then also with increased exercise, you have increased heart rate, which is decreasing your diastolic time. So the effects of diastolic dysfunction are important there also. And the second point I wanted to add are the effects of the dilated atria. So in this setting, we talked earlier about the causes of dilated atria. And in this situation, restrictive cardiomyopathy and dilated atria go hand in hand. And the dilated atria themselves were impose a couple of issues in and of themselves. So the three things I think about there are atrial arrhythmias, which this patient has, and then functional AV valve regurgitation, because you get the annular dilation from the atrial side. And this patient has mitral regurgitation and tricuspid regurgitation as functional. And the third thing are because the atria are so big and boggy with poor contractility is the risk for thromboembolism, even if they don't have atrial fibrillation. This patient has anticoagulation, and uh, that's also very important. Yeah, we did have him on a heparin drip while he was in the hospital. Absolutely. And the question I have is you've effectively diagnosed this incredible diagnosis of genetic restrictive cardiomyopathy. What is the counseling that we should provide to the family members? Yeah, that's a great question. And in a case like this, you want to do cascade screening because you can identify patients or, or family members that are at risk and, and potentially diagnose them early and, and get them early management if they are at risk. He met with a genetic counselor and his family has been referred for cascade screening for this mutation. 
Super interesting. Oh, absolutely. This collaboration across multiple components of cardiology highlights, again, what a lot of these case reports do highlight, which is that multi-D approach, this love of clinical medicine, as well as research in this patient's care. And it really speaks a lot about Duke. So is there anything you guys would like to share with us about your training program? Fortunately, I can't be a fellow at every single program at once. Got to have to choose one. And it would be really, really nice to hear your perspective. Pertinent to this particular case, I think what it shows is we have a particularly strong MRI program, as was earlier mentioned, but we also have a very strong heart failure program. It's actually the largest academic program in the country, from what I know. I think we have 22 heart failure, advanced heart failure providers at Duke alone. So it's a very big program that takes on high-risk cases like this. This man was 69 years old, had comorbidities, not a normal renal function. So this was not an easy case. And... He did fine. And I think that speaks to the nature of Duke and its excellence clinically. But then from a research standpoint, coincidentally, this patient was enrolled in this clinical study, but it also shows that the intersection for trainees to engage in clinical research at bedside, as much as in the lab, as Navid is involved, he worked in a translational basic lab with, with Swati Shah. So you have the opportunity as a, a clinical fellow and then a T32 fellow to engage across a wide spectrum of bedside and translational research, which is probably not unique to Duke, but very well developed and the pathways through those very well laid out. And I'm pretty sure that our program directors will speak to that a little bit more going forward, but that was the key reason for me to come to Duke when I was interviewing for fellowship. And I think that was one thing that distinguished Duke beyond many other programs. As I mentioned, I was here as a resident and I've had the opportunity to see the cardiology fellowship program as well from being a trainee involved with it. Really enjoy the broad referral base. I think that's something that Duke as an institution has, it's a Southeast hub of excellence and you're getting patients from all over North Carolina, as well as all the surrounding states. And so we're seeing people that are in that rural setting, that urban setting, you're seeing rich, you're seeing poor, you're seeing all different folks from different walks of life. And I think that definitely leads to, in my opinion, better training. And I think that's reflective as well in the fellowship. So very diverse fellowship, very collegial fellowship, and for me, those were some aspects I definitely really thought about when I was looking at fellowships. And then one other thing that I would say is the strong mentorship. So even starting as a resident here, getting involved with projects with some of the faculty and continuing on that mentorship, I just couldn't see myself replicating anything like that elsewhere. So I think for those reasons, Duke has been an amazing place to train for me. And I'll just pick up on that. I love what you said, Sipa. And Aside from my love for Duke basketball, in terms of reasons that I've loved being in Durham and training at Duke, it's the people and it's co-fellows and meeting up with you guys and out, even though it's been tough in these COVID times, just forming friendships across the different classes has been amazing. And beyond that, with the faculty and just how approachable they are and how kind and how supportive and just all the amazing projects that they're working on and how enthusiastic they are about getting us involved in those things. From Spotty Shaw to other folks across the heart failure division and EP, the faculty are amazing and supportive, and we're really grateful to have them here. And going back to the, your point about mentorship, I'll just add as an aside, it goes even from across fellowship classes. So Marat was instrumental in me writing up this case as a case report. He called me one night just out of the blue and said, hey, I remember that case that you presented? I think you should write that up. I think you should submit it as a case report. And he encouraged me and helped me along the way, helped me proofread and was a co-author on the paper. I was just so grateful for that. It's examples like that, anecdotes where Duke is just a great place to train. Well, we are definitely fans. And I'm sure you've seen from prior episodes that the Duke Hart family is a veteran of the Cardinals platform. We've had Dr. Pacini on to talk about atrial fibrillation. We've had Dr. Mentz on to talk about a variety of topics related to heart failure. Most recently, we had Drs. Nishant Shah and Anne-Marie Navar to talk about lipids, in addition to fellows in the past like Dr. Rahul Langani and Dr. Kelly Arp. So we are definitely fans. We're so thankful and grateful for you guys to spend your Sunday evenings with us. The food truck scene is amazing. We have to agree. And this is just a great get-together. Thank you so much for all the learning. 
really gives me great pleasure to introduce Dr. Risha Agarwal. She's our program director for our Heart Failure Fellowship and just an amazing person that I've had the pleasure of working with. So without much ado, Dr. Agarwal. Thanks, Sipa. The feeling is mutual. And I really want to thank the CardioNerd team. This has been really fun and it's always exciting to hear bright young minds talk about these interesting cases So I just wanted to start off with discussing this case and pointing out a few additional insights from what our discussants had mentioned. This was a really fascinating case that was not quite as billed when we were first asked to transfer this patient. He actually was described as someone who had significant pulmonary hypertension and concern for right heart failure, possibly core pulmonale. So when he came over to us, I think his chest x-ray was an immediate alarm that he had severe structural heart disease well beyond that, which could be explained by core pulmonale and a right heart failure picture. The things that were really impressive about this case was that along with being suspicious for restrictive cardiomyopathy, he had clear evidence for right greater than left-sided atrial enlargement and certainly appeared to have some right ventricular and left ventricular interdependence where we thought that over time he had likely developed remodeling and altered RV geometry related to his underlying restrictive cardiomyopathy. What was also really important for us in the determination of his hemodynamics was ensuring that his PBR was normal in considering him for advanced therapies. And we determined that he had largely pulmonary hypertension from left heart failure related to his restrictive disease process with an acceptable PBR for cardiac transplantation. He also had a very high cardiac output state, which was somewhat unexpected considering his small restrictive ventricles, as well as severe advanced heart failure. And we know that many of these patients with restrictive cardiomyopathy will have, despite the normal or near normal appearance of their systolic function, they will have low cardiac output and low stroke volumes. So our suspicion to explain his higher-than-expected cardiac output was related to the likely development of cardiac cirrhosis and possibly a low SVR state, in addition to concern for anemia. Additionally, we were concerned about his hypoxemia in the absence of underlying lung disease, but we believe that related to his large cardiac size and his restrictive lung function, that was explaining some degree of hypoventilation. But in looking at the cardiac MRI and considering his right greater than left atrial enlargement, it's also possible that he had a patent foramen ovale with right to left shunting, which we often can see. So after cardiac transplantation with normalization of his cardiac chambers and likely lung expansion, it's possible that he also had resolution quickly because he no longer had a patent foramen ovale with right to left shunting. Also, we did check for Fabry's disease in this gentleman with an alpha-gal enzyme that was normal. So restrictive cardiomyopathies are the least frequent type of cardiomyopathy encountered, and yet the most heterogeneous group of myocardial diseases that can vary according to the pathogenesis, diagnostic criteria, and prognosis. And the way we typically categorize restrictive cardiomyopathies is in two broad groups. One is primary or non-infiltrative restrictive cardiomyopathy, and this group consists of the idiopathic patients or those with inherited restrictive cardiomyopathy like our patient. It's typically in an autosomal dominant fashion. And then there is the other group of secondary or infiltrative cardiomyopathies, of which amyloidosis is considered the prototype. The secondary or infiltrative cardiomyopathies include amyloid sarcoidosis, which commonly in its advanced stages leads to a more dilated phenotype, hemochromatosis, and other common storage diseases such as Fabry's. You can also get an infiltrative secondary process through carcinoid or radiation and chemo-induced processes. And what's really important to remember is that Secondary forms are oftentimes associated with multi-system disease process. I think this case is really interesting because when we typically think of an inherited restrictive cardiomyopathy, we're looking at this in younger adults, classically less than 30 years of age. In this patient, given his age and his symptom onset in his 60s, we were really initially focused on cardiac amyloidosis, but we had no convincing evidence for that, even in absence of a biopsy, based on his laboratory findings as well as his cardiac MRI. 
When we think about the workup for restrictive cardiomyopathy, non-invasive evaluation, especially with cardiac MRI, has greatly diminished the need for an endomyocardial biopsy in most cases. And additionally now, in the cases of cardiac amyloidosis for ATTR, wild-type or hereditary ATTR, we are now able to use PYP scans, which has greatly obviated the need for tissue biopsy. Typically for AL amyloid, a biopsy is still mandatory. The ACC-AHA gives a class 2A recommendation for endomyocardial biopsy, where it can play an important role, especially when other causes for heart failure are currently ill-defined. But we know that endomyocardial biopsy is diagnostic in approximately 30% of patients with unexplained heart failure and restrictive physiology or restrictive cardiomyopathy. And there was recently a study done by the group at Hopkins with the senior author of Dr. Kavitha Sharma that found that routine endomyocardial biopsy in patients with HEFPEF, about 15% of those patients had cardiac amyloidosis. So it's clear that HEFPEF and cardiac amyloidosis can often be mimics. And we have for a long time greatly underdiagnosed and underappreciated the prevalence of cardiac amyloid. When thinking about hereditary restrictive cardiomyopathies, as mentioned in this case, there is a strong association with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy genetic mutations. And that's why the value of genetic testing is so great in making these genotypic phenotypic correlations is that hereditary RCM has shared features with HCM. And so they are likely diseases that are part of a broad phenotypic spectrum. When we think about our gentleman and his genetic screening and recommendations for family members to be screened, it would be very interesting to understand if affected family members have a mixed phenotypic characterization of cardiomyopathy with some family members perhaps having hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and others falling more along the lines of a restrictive phenotype. In terms of thinking about patients who have advanced restrictive cardiomyopathies, we know that their prognosis is far worse than other forms of cardiomyopathy for the reasons that there's often multi-organ disease involvement, lack of stabilizing therapies, and these patients are typically not candidates for inotropes or mechanical circulatory support. Cardiac transplantation is an option for these patients. However, less than 5% of adult cardiac transplants are performed for restrictive cardiomyopathy compared to greater than 50% of transplants performed in dilated cardiomyopathy. The prior cardiac transplantation allocation system in UNOS had previously not used a type of cardiomyopathy in determination of priority status. In most cases, the priority of patients awaiting transplantation is dictated by need for inotropes and MCS, which as mentioned are not great options for patients with restrictive cardiomyopathy. This is true even in the new allocation system which is still largely device-driven. So it is particularly challenging for patients like our patient to advance in priority on the transplantation list when mechanical circulatory support is often not an option. Oftentimes, upgrade for heart transplantation requires status exceptions or use of inotropes, which, as we know, may not improve cardiac output in these patients and may actually increase the risk of arrhythmias, which they are already predestined to have. And so oftentimes when we think about ways to support these patients for transplant, while we can use inotropes cautiously, the greatest support is derived by biventricular mechanical circulatory support or total artificial heart, which is not commonly employed except in more experienced centers. And again, based on a number of factors related to patient wait time and waitlist mortality. It's clear that because these patients have very small and restrictive ventricles, left ventricular assist device utilization is quite low in these patients. And in a recent study by the group at Columbia, they showed that patients who were waitlisted for heart transplantation, RCM patients had almost a 30% lower likelihood of receiving mechanical circulatory support devices compared to non-RCM patients while awaiting transplantation. So what does this mean for patients who have restrictive cardiomyopathy who are in need of transplantation? Well, we know that their weightless survival is severely reduced compared to other forms of cardiomyopathy, including hypertrophs and dilated cardiomyopathy. They, along with congenital heart disease patients and those who require retransplantation, face a greater weightless mortality, again, due to the disadvantage of not having opportunities to intervene with mechanical circulatory support. 
However, when patients do go on to get transplant, we know that patients who have restrictive cardiomyopathies have a post-transplant survival that is comparable to those of non-restrictive cardiomyopathy patients, which is, in our patient's case, great news. And so if we can get these patients to transplant without significant end organ dysfunction or multi-system disease, such as an amyloidosis, these patients will have ultimately a very good survival. There is a signal in subgroups of RCM, including the patients who have amyloid and radiation or chemo-induced restrictive cardiomyopathy for a lower post-transplant survival compared to idiopathic restrictive cardiomyopathy patients. And again, I think that's largely explained by the fact that patients with amyloid, for instance, have greater progressive end-organ dysfunction. And so therefore, their overall survival post-transplant is guided not only by the success of organ transplantation, but that which is also in the context of multi-system organ disease. That was awesome. So just for the benefit of our applicants, especially with all that's going on with COVID, we do have a couple words from Dr. Annalisa Crowley, who's our program director. She's been fantastic, and I think she's going to have some great pearls about the program that I'd love for you guys to hear. Hi, my name is Annalisa Crowley. I am the program director of the Duke Cardiology Fellowship. I am excited to highlight four features that give a glimpse into the culture of our training program. First, the depth and breadth of our clinical training environment. Our fellows learn from diverse patients. We care for patients from the community with incident presentations of cardiovascular disease and complex referrals in all cardiovascular subspecialties. Learning is done side by side with world expert faculty, inquisitive, bright, and kind co-fellows, residents, and students. Second, our commitment to research. Due to the depth and breadth of our clinical experience, our fellows are able to complete all clinical requirements within two years. As a result, our fellows can devote multiple years to scientific investigation and scholarly pursuits. Fortunately, our program funds this time through a variety of T32 or other divisional funds that are independent of the specific mentors or labs selected. Third, we offer flexibility in multiple domains. I want to highlight five different areas where we offer flexibility. First, we offer flexibility in both the duration and content of the scholarly time. Fellows can take one or two years to dedicate to research. The research can be done anywhere along the continuum from basic to translational to clinical trials, population, and global health. Second, fellows have the opportunity to pursue advanced degrees if it is consistent with their individual development plan. Some examples of advanced degrees our current cardiology fellows are pursuing are a Master's of Health Sciences, a Master's of Biostatistics, a Master's in Global Health, and a Master's in Medical Clinical Informatics. These degrees are subsidized by our program. Third, we have the ability for additional advanced clinical training. Currently, some fellows are using this to pursue a critical care fellowship, a clinical informatics fellowship, and advanced imaging training embedded within their cardiology fellowships. Fourth, We have flexibility in the order of research and advanced clinical training. While most fellows pursue research endeavors prior to advanced subspecialty training, some fellows do advanced clinical training prior to their research time. For example, we have one fellow pursuing heart failure and another pursuing critical care prior to their research time. And fifth, we have flexibility in our benefits. We are fortunate to be able to offer all the medical and dental plans plus six weeks of paid parental leave that's independent of gender. The last thing I want to highlight about our program is our inclusivity. Our current fellows are committed to excellence. Our program believes that diversity drives excellence and that strength lies in our differences. Our three-year class is one-half women and one-third populations that have been underrepresented in cardiology. We also support applicants on G1 visas. We are an anti-racist program at our values and our core. In sum, I want to state that our program is committed to offering trainees world-class clinical and research training in a flexible and inclusive environment with the most amazing mentors. Thank you for your time. Wow. What an amazing episode. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with another terrific discussion and an incredible addition to the Cardio Nerds case report series. 
Be sure to check out the show notes for all of the case media available for review, key take-home points and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for the Heartbeat, the CardioNerds newsletter, by clicking on the link in the episode show notes. We thank the ACC Fellow in Training section chaired by Dr. Nasheen Riza for their incredible support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our phenomenal production team for elevating the platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Das, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song, and Bibin Verghese, internal medicine senior residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as the team MedEd mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karin Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, read and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split. That's absolutely fascinating. Actually, I'm going to say that again because my voice cracked. I'm going to chalk that up to the coffee. I I might just keep the original, but that's okay. (laughs) <laughs> I'll, I'll uh dealer's choice for the editor on this one but i might no. <laughs> uh, I, I definitely want to add that's incredible